The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we'll be discussing all things related to guns, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. I'm joined today by my co-host, Zev the Wolf Nadler, owner and operator of Firearms Concierge and BestDronage.com. Thanks, Kelly. And I want to give a shout out to our good friend Len Backus at LongRangeHunting.com. For all your long-range hunting and shooting needs, check out his website, LongRangeHunting.com. Man, if you're going to do business with anybody in the long-range uh, portion of the industry, uh, Len's a great guy. I mean, one of those myth busters that when you've heard uh, nice guys aren't successful, that's not true. Len's one of the nicest guys I've met and uh, a pleasure to do business with. So I recommend all of our listeners to check him out. Today, we've got a really interesting guest, uh, military background, as it seems a, a lot of our um, guests um, have. But more than that, uh, he's probably as accomplished in long-range shooting and um, uh, coaching as anybody I've ever met. Um, he's got such a great resume, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. Uh, I just want to introduce Emil Praslik. Uh, Emil, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here. Well, uh, you know, we met for the first time not too long ago. We were at a match, and uh, we happened to be sitting across the, the, the table from each other uh, having lunch and uh, got to chat a little bit. Um, I know you were a Billy Jack fan, and it, it just so happens that not, not long after that, I uh, come across a poster of the movie Billy Jack. Uh, you know, I think Billy Jack was the epitome of of what a badass was uh, you know back in the early 70s when that movie came out i know i was in high school and it was filmed right here in prescott arizona so it was a big deal for everybody around here to watch that movie and uh, i think he may have been uh, the reason why a lot of guys took up martial arts and you know kelly i was in prescott this last weekend and you had mentioned the burger joint that that poster was in and my daughter and i walked in there and i took a picture of her standing next to it i'll have to share that with you later cool so uh, amel why don't you give us a, a little background on yourself where you grew up um you know how you came to be uh such a renowned figure in the, the shooting industry uh, sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm originally from uh, New York, uh, about an hour north of uh, New York City. And uh, I joined the Army right out of high school. I was 17 when I enlisted. Um, my father had been a competitive shooter, um, NRA, high power, and long-range stuff. And he had shot for the Navy, 
back when the Navy, all the service teams had full-time, large uh, shooting teams back in the you know late 50s and early 60s. So I kind of grew up around competitive shooting. <clears throat> Didn't really shoot very much as a junior, but we're always out trying to shoot the smallest target we could find, you know, whether it was a a can or a ping pong ball or trying to shoot dimes off a fence post or something with air rifles. We're always shooting. So joined the Army, and um, I was the uh, signed to the 2nd Ranger Battalion up in Fort Lewis, Washington. And while I was up there, just sort of by natural progression, I ended up as one of the guys that uh, shot well and got assigned a sniper rifle. At the time, that was an M21, an accurized M14 um, I did some time. I did my four years commitment. I got out, went to college, did some other stuff, and then I ended up um, shooting competitively. And I joined the National Guard because um, you could get a free rifle and free ammunition. They had a pretty good deal. And I was only on the National Guard team a couple years before the active team for the U.S. Army, the United States Army Marksmanship Unit, offered me a job to come back active duty and be a, a full-time shooter for the AMU. Um, the Army Marksmanship Unit uh, was formed in 1956 by an executive order by then-President Eisenhower. Um, there was a real gap between the Eastern European countries, you know, the East Germanys, the, you know, Hungarys, the, the Soviet Union. They were, they were really uh, given it to us in international shooting, especially the Olympics. And it was a real propaganda tool for them. So uh, President Eisenhower established a, a unit within the United States that was focused on competitive shooting. Um, and at the time, specifically Olympic style events. So that unit still exists today. We we uh, we have there's a shooting section for each Olympic event, plus shooting sections for um, action shooting, three gun, and what I'd ended up shooting, which was service rifle and long range. Um, I had a pretty good career as a shooter when I got tapped to be a coach in 2003. So from 2003 until I retired uh, about a year and a half ago, I was the head coach for the uh, Army shooting team. Um, and so that we covered service rifle, um, sniper training for different military units, um, writing doctrine for marksmanship, um, writing up some uh, periods of instruction for different shooting schools that the Army now runs, and uh, shooting all over the world representing the Army. Uh, and the United States. I had the opportunity to be the uh, head coach for the U.S. Palma team in 2011 and 2015, and I've also been a coach for the U.S. F-Class team in uh, South Africa and Canada. So my my bailiwick has really always been the long-range shooting and ammo development for the team, um, gun development, and writing up training plans and just making the guys better shots. So uh, I retired in uh, December of 2015, and uh, I was offered a job by the president of Burger Bullets a few months after that, Eric Stecker, and I came on board as the um, sponsorship director, managing all the sponsoring programs that we have at Burger. And uh, now I'm the business development manager for U.S. tactical sales across um, all the brands that we have in the NAMO umbrella. So that's Lapua, Vitavori, and Burger. So my, my focus now is on 
military projects and uh, tactical projects, and I still do quite a bit of shooting, and I have involvement with the the U.S. teams, the F-class teams, and the uh, U.S. Palma team. That's kind of it in in a nutshell. That's really impressive. Uh, There were a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. It always amazes me how interconnected this industry is, even when you don't know it. Uh, when you mentioned that your father shot on the on the Navy shooting team, I, I don't know what time frame that was, but I do know that the Navy shooting team was the very first um, military team that my father actually built complete rifles for their team to compete with, uh, and that was back in the you know, early '80s, mid '80s. Uh, very interesting that uh, we we have that connection, though neither one of us probably knew that. The second thing was is the M21 that you were shooting. By any chance, did that have a fiberglass stock on it? It uh, so we had a couple of wood stocks, and then a couple had fiberglass stocks. Yeah, we we got some we got some of those. I was when I was in the the range battalion that was right in the transition before the M24 wasn't designed yet. So. Um, we had a few with those Macmillan fiberglass stocks on them. Well, awesome. I have not, in in the history of Macmillan, we've not had a great relationship with the Army in that the MTU was really the only organization that we worked directly with. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the army has never used any of our products and other than the, you know their shooting teams but um it was almost always um, kind of a circuitous route how our products got into the Army's hands. Though we had a, a, a better working relationship with the Navy, and I think in, in the modern age with the, the Joint Warfare Task Force and everything, um, some of our products get into the hands of people. We're not actually sure where they get there, how they get there, but um, it's good to know that you had an early experience uh, shooting McMillan fiberglass stocks. Yes, and, you know, uh, additionally, when I... Um you know, when I when I first came to the Army Marksmanship Unit, that's that's what we have. We have uh, you know McMillan stocks on on our thousand yard rifles, and that was the first that was the first time I ever you know had a chance to shoot a rifle that was like that. It was really you know that one of the uh, one of the main advantages for a, for a stock like that is you know there are virtually for soldiers, even though we were competitive shooters, and you're supposed to have a higher expectation of how a guy treats his gear and does maintenance, and you know these are all very expensive systems they're shooting. They're still soldiers, right? So, um, you know, you you put two soldiers in a room with a you know a steel couple of steel ball bearings, and they'll probably find out a way. To um, so, but yeah, so just how reliable they were, and you know, and uh, stability-wise, that. Zeros didn't move, you know. Quite a quite a change from shooting some of the older wooden stocked rifles that I kind of you know grew up shooting long range with with my dad. Hey, Emil, you know I really appreciated your uh, uh, beginning of this uh, show talking about the political reasons for the creation of the teams. That was fascinating. Um, also, understanding the chronology behind it. Um, I had read somewhere that a 2008 Sports Illustrated article said that you may well be the best wind reader in the world, and <laughs> and I wanted to talk about that because you know that's something near and dear to my heart. Um, when I uh, I have a small business 
business called Firearms Concierge, and when we take folks out, um, teach them the very basics of long range, and I mean, you know, 500 yards to maybe 850, we talk about how the wind you feel on your face and the wind you see at the Mirage is not necessarily the wind that's going through four different canyons in between. So I wanted to ask you how you developed your uh, wind savvy, and, and if you can give us a couple tips, or me a couple tips. Uh, sure. Um so, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that. Um, in uh, 2008, Sports Illustrated came up to do a, an article on long-range shooting. Um, they came up to Camp Perry, Ohio, and uh, they sent a reporter up there at, to observe the long-range national championships. And the when that guy first showed up, he was actually treating it like... Um, I think his intent was to write like a tongue-in-cheek article about it, not really taking it seriously like, hey, look at all these, you know, odd guys doing this odd sport and, you know, kind of, you know, more like a uh, more like a piece where they didn't really give respect or take this thing for, take it very seriously. And within about a day of him being on the ground, his attitude completely changed. Um, he was, you know, watching everybody shoot and looking at the equipment, and he was honestly impressed. And if you read uh, the article, it was, it was in, the, in their online um, their online magazine, and so they kind of followed around the front runners for the national championship. And Brian uh, was uh, John Whitten and uh, two of my army shooters, and one was uh, Sergeant First Class Lance Dement, the other one was Specialist Sherry Gallagher, and. Um, so I sat with him for about a couple of hours and just predicting where the different shots would come up on the target based on the wind and looking at the mirage and the trees and the grass and the flag. And um, he was kind enough to, to write that about me. I'm not sure I am. Um, there's, I meet guys all the time that are as good or better than me. Um, and reading the wind is something that you're – it's a constant study. You know, I feel like I – you know, learn something every time I go out there. Um, but what I, you know, uh, unique to my circumstances, I think, was the fact that we had to deal with, um, in the Army, multiple calibers and multiple bullets. Um, you have some people, they look at reading the wind or figuring out the ballistic solution for the wind um, based on appearance. And then you have some people that look at hard physical metrics and for analysis. And you can really break down shooters into those two categories, I feel. Someone that kind of looks downrange and they say, that looks like three minutes of wind, or that looks like one and a half mils of wind. And you try to ask them how they come up with that number, and they said, I don't know, it just looks like it. And they may be very good at that process. Um, some of the best long-range competitive shooters in the world, that's exactly how they do things. But they couldn't really break it down to you. Um, I, you know, I had to deal with about six different calibers and two or three different bullets um, for all those calibers. Yeah, everything from 50 cal down to 223, 77 grain match ammunition um, as part of my duties. So I started uh, identifying all the different metrics I needed in my process to get a first wind call. So for me, the first thing to do is you have to identify the basic direction of the wind. And, and like you mentioned, um, sometimes it can be different um, in two different locations. For me, um, it's, 
it's easier for me to look at the wind at two places. First, at the muzzle, where you are, and then about halfway downrange. Um, usually, if, it's, if it agrees at those two places, you can get a fairly high-confidence ballistic solution. You do have your outliers where the wind may be the exact opposite direction out of a canyon 100 yards from the target, but that doesn't really happen that often. And uh, there's ways of kind of getting around that, too. Um, so what I do is just try to get a general direction. And I say mid-range between you and the target because... That's about where your bullet is, the highest your bullet is, en route to the target. That's your max ord is about 50 to 55% of the way to the target. That's the highest point in the trajectory. And, you know, there's a thing called um, wind gradient, which means that the higher you get up off the ground, the higher the wind speed is. So looking at the wind mid-range between you and the target is a good place to do that because your bullet is as, t- as high in the air as it's going to be in its trajectory. And the wind, whatever direction it's blowing in, is probably blowing its hardest when the bullet is the highest in the air, if that makes sense. Yes. So, um, so that's a good place to look. So I'll just get a general direction, and then I'll try to figure out uh, the speed. Now, when it comes to direction... Um, Knowing the percentages of what each direction on a clock is relative to your line of sight or your gun target line is really, really important. Um, So, you know, my basic, when I teach a wind class, the first thing I'll say to somebody is, you know, we all know that shooting at 12 o'clock, the wind is from 12 o'clock or the wind is from 6 o'clock. We call that a no-value wind, which means that the wind doesn't really have that much of a ballistic effect, left or right, on our bullet going down range. And we know that the wind coming from directly 90 degrees or from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock or from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock, that is the most ballistic effect. So if you ask somebody, hey, what's half wind? What, what, is, a, what is a half value wind then? If zero degrees is no value and 90 degrees is full value, what's half value? And most people will say 45 degrees because that's right in the middle between zero and 90. And that's wrong. And that's why a lot of people miss their first shot. Most people tend to underdope the wind, especially inexperienced shooters. Because 45 degrees is really about 70% of the wind value. And so it's the cosine of the angle, the wind angle. And the, an easy way to kind of to do it is you can just take a calculator and look at the direction of the wind relative to your line of fire and type in the angle on any calculator, any scientific calculator, and press the sign button, and you're going to get the percentage of the wind. So a 1 o'clock wind, which is 30 degrees, the sign of 30 is 0.5 or 50%. So that means that that half-value wind is really a 1 o'clock wind. And most people, if they look at downrange and they go to 1 o'clock, and it's only 30 degrees off their firing line, they think that, ah, that's about a quarter-value wind. No, that's half-value. And when you get over to 45 degrees, it picks up to 70%. And when you go over to 2 o'clock wind, well, you're almost at 87% of the wind. And when you get over to 230, then you're into the upper 90 percentage of the wind. So knowing those percentages, and there's a million different resources out there that will tell you what those percentages are, is really important. 
So knowing, first knowing how to uh, assess the direction and what percentage of the wind is, is super important. Then you need to know the wind speed. You know, luckily now we have all kinds of devices that can tell us the wind speed. We have Kestrels and... I mean, you can go on your iPhone and pull up a weather report from Weather Underground or one of these websites, and it'll give you a pretty accurate prediction of the wind speed and, and uh, direction hour by hour, what you can expect at your location that you're shooting, and usually pretty good. And then from there, you have wind speed and you have velocity, and then all you need to know is how much that's going to move your bullet. So what I like to do is know what my bullet is pushed in a one mile per hour at whatever ranges I'm going to be shooting. So say for every 100 yards or every 100 meters back, I know what that number is. Um, and either minutes or mills, whatever uh, a person's using for their uh, corrections. And then I would just multiply my true wind speed times that correction and I have a ballistic solution. Um, it's a pretty simple and quick process. Uh, you know, visually, it's easier to break it down for somebody than kind of just talking about it, but that's the basic process is I figure out what the direction is, apply a percentage of the wind to that, and then figure out the velocity. And then I know uh, for every one mile per hour that true wind speed is, um, how much it moves my bullet, and then I have a ballistic solution. Does that... Is that clear as mud to you? Absolutely. I have a question for you. How much of this did you learn by reading a book and sitting inside um, studying? And how much of it did you learn by practical application on the range? Um, so I think the, um, the when I first started shooting, all the wind tables and wind charts, there were this old rosette style, um, which means that you have a you have a... You have a bunch of circles, concentric circles, maybe printed on a piece of paper. It tells you at a certain angle how many clicks or how many minutes worth of wind you have based on the wind speed and based on the angle to it. Um, and uh, I don't really, I never really liked using those because um, I, I found that I was, you know, spending more time looking at a chart, looking at a, a piece of paper than I was looking downrange and looking at the the grass and wind flags when we had them for competitive shooting and looking at the mirage. So um, I think this concept of, of a one-mile-per-hour or 10-mile-per-hour correction, it's not new. It's certainly nothing that I came up with. Um, I actually I have a, a pretty good collection of older marksmanship materials, and I have a, I have a pamphlet that the, that the, uh, uh, the DCM, uh, which was the old uh, uh, shooting uh, organization that the Division of Civilian Marksmanship that the U.S. Army ran, um, they they uh, they covered all the uh, service rifle shooting from the you know 1900s all the way up until the mid 90s when that was uh, dissolved and the Civilian Marksmanship Program or CMP was created to take its place. They produced a pamphlet in 1931. And they interviewed all the coaches at the time. Um, there was an article from the Marine Corps rifle team from 1931. There was an article from the Army infantry team, from the uh, the Navy team, a couple of civilian teams. And I, I was amazed. I had been coaching about five years already, and I found this in our library 
at Fort Benning. And I started reading through it. All the innovations that I thought I had come up with were already written down in 1931. So I, uh, I, I really started uh, casting kind of a wide net and, um, you know, talking to people that necessarily weren't shooters on how they estimated the wind. I would talk to some competitive sail, uh, sailboat racers, um, and they used that basic process. So I kind of borrowed and plugged and played from a lot of different uh, sources and just figured out something that works for me. And um, it's a pretty simple process. I can teach it to somebody quickly. And it's very easy to get your basic reference points about um, getting a true wind speed from the percentage of the wind to your target and the wind speed just by using division. And then just by using multiplication, figure out what it's worth on the target. And uh, and it works across all the different calibers, and there's no little quick, you know, you don't have to remember, you know, formulas or rules of thumb or anything like that. You just need an index card written down with your one-mile-per-hour number and then just know the percentages. So I guess to answer your question, it was really uh, I, I just borrowed from lots of different sources and just modified it so it works for me. And I've, uh, you know, I taught all my shooters in the Army, and I've, I taught multiple guys in different formats, everything from special operations guys to long-range hunters, and it's a pretty good system. Well, the reason that I ask that is I've been at an F-class match. I've watched the coaches. They're they're looking uh, in the spotting scope. They'll reach down, uh, you know, add a click to the uh, windage on the shooter's um, scope, and they don't have time to go to their book, their calculator, make all this. You know, they need to be able to look through that scope, see what they see, know what that means, and then make a decision immediately. And the shooters have to have the confidence in them to be able to say, okay, this is what he said to do, so that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, know that the bullet's going to head where it's supposed to. So I guess that was my, my question is, once you have all this really over my head stuff that you've been talking about what it really comes down to when you sit down on that stool and and coach a match you have to have the confidence in what you see know what the value for that is and be able to transmit that almost immediately because it changes from second to second you know that's that's a really good point uh and and so you know what you all that you have to do some sort of calculation to, you know, get your first shot on the target. But then from there, like you said, it's really um, reading the wind. Whatever you're looking at, whether it's mirage or looking at some vegetation, or if you are in the competitive shooting world and they do have wind flags up, everything after that first shot is pattern recognition. Um, so. You know, what does the mirage look like when I shot? So say I have five minutes, I make my wind call, and I think it's five minutes of wind at 1,000 yards, and I shoot my shot, and it's a 10. It's, a, it's in the middle. What I'll immediately do then is look at every indicator I can find. I'll look at the direction of the wind. I'll look at the maybe the, what the wind flag looks like. I'll look at what the mirage looks like, and I'll burn that image into my mind, and I'll say, that is five minutes. And then that's where the experience kicks in. You know, that if you've done it a long time, you see the mirage slow up and you say, okay, I think it's slowed down X amount or it's picked up X amount. But you have to have that first reference point of what that image, what that pattern looks like. Um, and some people's brains are better at it than others. Um, you know, I don't have a great memory. Um, you know, I can't really even tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. 
but I can remember what the flags and the wind looks like on every range I've ever shot on. I can probably even tell you what I used for wind at uh, Camp Pendleton um, in 1998 when I was shooting an M14. It's, it's something that, for whatever reason, I've trained my brain to um, recognize those patterns. And the good coaches, that's what they do. Um, like you said, as those quick changes happen, you have to be decisive and, and make a change. And that, that, there's one thing that I, when I talk about competitive wind reading, and if, if anybody listening to this wants to do a takeaway on just a, a philosophy of reading the wind, it's there's two sides on any target. So when the wind is, say, blowing out of the left, so the downwind side of the target would be the right-hand side of the target, and the upwind side of the target would be the left-hand side of the target. I always encourage people to try to miss on the upwind side. So that means be as aggressive as you possibly can on your initial wind call. Don't be passive, because there's something in our brain that we don't really want the wind to be blowing as hard as it really is sometimes. You see, the, you see, you see it whipping across the plane, and you're like, man, it couldn't possibly be nine minutes of wind. Well, you know what? Put nine or nine and a half on. So I call the upwind side of the target the professional side and the downwind side of the target the amateur side. So always push yourself to miss upwind, miss on the pro side rather than the amateur side because that's how you learn. And more often than not, because it's so hard to determine direction downrange, there may be more value in the wind than you realize. So miss on the pro side and not the amateur side. I think that's a perfect place to end it, Amos. Sorry that uh, we didn't get to cover any more of the information I wanted to talk about, but uh, all that does is mean that we're going to bring you back at some point. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate you spending the time with us to, to share this with us. It's been very interesting, and promise me you'll come back. Of course, Kelly. I'd love to. I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and Zeb, thank you as well. And, uh, yeah, I'm... You know me, we're all shooters, so we like nothing better than just you know run our mouth and talk about shooting. So anytime. Thanks again. I'd like to ask our listeners to stand by for a short commercial break. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Thanks for uh, sticking with us and welcome back to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Our next guest is Jonathan Owens. He has the distinction of being the very first second time guest on this show and we're really pleased to have him on the air. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, Kelly. You know, it doesn't seem like it, but 25 or 27 minutes just goes so fast that when you're at the end of a, a segment, you say, man, we, we didn't get to cover half the things that we want to talk about. We're going to have to have him back. So you happen to be the first one that we've actually asked to come back and and share some more information with us. Um, got a couple of things that I want to talk about right off the bat. First off, um, you're in the IT business, uh, which isn't unusual in this day and age for uh, a gun guy to also be an IT guy, but why don't you give us the name of your company, website, just give us a brief description of what you do so that anybody listening who has need for your services can get a hold of you. Well, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. That's a bread and butter piece of our nut, and we enjoy uh, that. So I wear two hats, and uh, one of the hats that I wear is the digital marketing slash uh, web design development and so forth world. And we enjoy that. We work with a number of clients in the industry and that's uh, a great overlap for us. And we'll probably, uh, hit that overlap a couple of times before we finish this uh, little call. But, uh, as you know, we've done business as Fusion Web Architects for a long time, uh, fusionwebarchitects.com. But in the sense that the cobbler's kids have no shoes, uh, we have neglected that site a little bit while working on sites like Macmillan. That said, we're actually working on a rebrand, so this is the first time we've publicly made this available, but it's going to Tier 1 Creative, so you can find that at tier1creative.com. And that is almost ready to go live, but since you have me and you asked the question, there you go, that's where it's headed and we do all things related to cameras and computers. Well, that's really exciting. Um, I'm really happy for you. I know that anytime you rebrand and you, you want to give a, a, a more full explanation of what you do to your your customers, um, that's always an exciting thing because you're finding out that, hey, you know, Fusion Architect, that might be just a little short of what we're really trying to be. So uh, good luck with Tier 1 Creative. I know that that uh, says a lot about who you are just from my experience with you. So I think it's going to be a great uh, brand for you. Well, thank you. I genuinely appreciate that. People don't know that uh, you have been a great encouragement to us. Uh, in every venue that we've worked in over the years that you and I have known each other. So I appreciate that, and I know it's genuine. If people have listened listened to the show uh, often enough, they'll find one thing in common with the majority of the uh, guests that I have on, and that is I truly appreciate working with and being part of and promoting 
good people. And uh, Jonathan, you happen to be one of those guys who is just genuinely a nice guy, good to work with, true to your word, um, you know, always thinking about uh, what's proper and what's the right thing, uh, the right way to do things. And, and I really appreciate having someone like that working for, with me. Well, thanks. I have to credit mom for uh, for raising, well, mom and dad, but uh, mom's still with us. And uh, she always told us, you know, if you just tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said, which works out really well for me. Okay, we've covered the IT part of it. Now let's talk about Schwatt. Um, give us a background on that. Tell us what it is and, and uh, how people can uh, find out more about it. So Schwatt is a word that is meant to be abused. Like that Jonathan guy really doesn't know Schwatt. So we are, that is definitely the deal. Special Hunting Weapons and Tactics is the acronym, uh, what the acronym refers to, Special Hunting Weapons and Tactics, schwat.com. And it is all about tactical and long-range hunting, which to me, long-range hunting is a, is a piece of that whole puzzle. But it is the excitement uh, of an active sport. Um, I am not a guy that really enjoys sitting in a blind for 13 hours. I'm a guy that uh, really enjoys going out and chasing things and so forth. And that was kind of the genesis of SWAT was where we were in Texas and we were hog hunting and we were going after them with AR-15s and thinking, man, if we can shoot them at 100, we can shoot them at 50. And if we can shoot them at 50, we can shoot them at 25 if we can get you know that close. And then what would be really fun is if we could get between them and cover their cover that they want and it get really, really exciting. And all of that was true. And so we decided that we were tactical hunters because we were too dumb to know any different. And, uh, you know, somebody I, I was talking to, somebody in the silencer industry, they built up a nice company a few years ago, and they said it was a hobby gone bad. And I think that that's probably a good description of how SWAT came to be. And now we have uh, some great writers and great opportunities to do some neat video content pictures and ride the whole the whole suite it's a lot of fun that's exciting um so in a nutshell schwatt is an online magazine slash um content provider absolutely yes okay great so any of our listeners that want to learn more about that um that's um schwatt.com s-h-w-a-t.com right perfect Okay, so now that we've got through all of that, that's the uh, the to pay the bills, so to speak. Um, you mentioned family and your mom, but I know that you had an experience with uh, your daughter that you'd like to talk about. Well, you know, hunting is something that I got started on very, very late uh, relative to, you know, I see these pictures. My son, he's four. He just shot his first deer. I'm thinking, you know, I was past 34 by the time I shot my first deer. And so I am so thrilled for those people that are introducing their kids at such a young age to uh, the excitement and the maturity and responsibility that comes with hunting. My daughter's actually 19. And despite my uh, infatuation with the, the hunting world, and particularly hogs, I just find them to be incredibly fun, and I get to go chase them and don't have to wait for them to show up. It's, uh, it, you know, high-tech and fun guns and all this stuff, thermal and night vision. You know, it's just a riot. But my family is kind of like, eh, that's something Dad does. That's something Jonathan does. 
And so bringing them, they take things for granted. And so uh, bringing out my daughter on a hunt was a lot of fun. We did a full story on this at Schwatt.com. The, uh, the version, the story is that we'd gone down to Texas. Lauren had a, had a break, and we'd moved to Colorado, but all her friends are mostly down there. So it was a lot of fun. We go down there, and she spends her time hanging out with friends in uh, West Texas, and I'm about an hour or two north of there, you know, shooting pigs, and night after night we've been out. So I go back down to pick her up the last night, bring her back, and I let her know, hey, why don't you come with us just because I don't know when you'll get another opportunity to see what it is that uh, my great friend Jared and I love about hanging out at night shooting these hogs in the wheat fields. She says, well, okay. She's a pretty uh, flexible young lady. She's like, whatever, I'll go. I was like, good, you can help spot. Because you got to give value to what somebody's doing. So you can help spot. Here's a thermal monocular. A pulsar sent us some gear to test out. It was great. So she gets in this vehicle, and we go out, and we shoot some pigs. And she's like, okay, I get it. It's pretty cool. I'm like, good, because you're shooting the next one. And so I gave her a, uh, the rifle that I was using. Uh, which was 300 blackout uh, Bushmaster minimalist rifle with a uh, pulsar clip-on thermal optic. Put it on a tripod for, and we go out and we start closing distance on the next group of hogs. And it dawns on me as we're going out there, there's a magnified optic on this, and you just spent a lot of time speaking with great authorities on people shooting with magnified optics at distance. Imagine that you're uh, an inexperienced shooter, Lawrence has shot some, but not a lot, and you've never used a magnified optic compounded with the fact that you're right-handed and left-eye dominant. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, pitch black, and you're using a thermal on top of this. So you got to figure out the eye box, eye relief, what am I looking at through this? And, of course, she had no preparation at all. So here we are. One o'clock in the morning, sitting in a wheat field, hogs in about, I guess, a 180-degree plane, more probably 240-degree plane. They're a little bit wrapped around in a semicircle around us. And we're like, okay, Warren, here's what you're going to do. And then she's like, I can't see through this optic. Oh. So we have to go through this whole learning curve in no time at all. She gets behind the optic, pulls the trigger, puts that bullet right where she was supposed to in the neck of that pig, and uh and it was great you know and the opportunity for me to more or less function as a guide with my daughter and share the thrill of the hunt for me was a really big deal i can't tell you that she's an addict that she's hooked that she can't wait for her next opportunity but she had a great time and it's just one more story she gets to tell well you know i know it's good for you to be able to share a story about interacting with your kids uh what's your daughter's name lauren Lauren. So uh, congratulations, Lauren, uh, on your first hunt. I, I know that it was exciting for you, and, and I'm sure when the time's right, you'll get back out there with Dad and get to do it again. Now, I have a similar story. I, I took six hunters. All of them had McMillan rifles, were using McMillan rifles. One guy here in town borrowed one from me. He says, I want to go so bad, but I don't I don't have one of your rifles. Uh, so I, I lent him a, a Remington uh, 416 in a, a McMillan rifle. And uh, he took his wife uh, along as a uh, just a, a non-hunting participant. So 
after four days of crawling around the forest hunting for Cape Buffalo, and and I mean literally crawling because this guy wanted to do it the old-fashioned way, all of the rest of us had opted to go out into the uh, river delta and shoot a Cape Buffalo on the out, out in the open on the plains, but he wanted to spot and stock and and hunt these buffaloes the old way. So anyway, long story short, after four days, um, his wife says, I'm not going to chase around after you anymore. I want to shoot one. And I had already shot mine, so I lent her my 404 Jeffrey. And uh, she, the very first shot she had ever taken, uh, short of one practice round so that she knew it wouldn't knock her on her butt, um, (laughs) she put it exactly where it was supposed to put it. The guide says, shoot him again. She put a second round, not more than two inches away. Her husband put his 416 into... (laughs) And this is amazing. At about 90 yards um, off shooting sticks, uh, they put a three-shot group within an inch and a half on this buffalo as he's staggering around, not knowing what hit him. And then the fourth shot was the guide who actually was about four inches from that. But the funny thing was is that, you know, when you start hunting and you shoot a Cape buffalo, where do you go next? <laughs> I mean, wow. that's usually the once-in-a-lifetime trip that somebody plans for years. But, yeah, she was, she was not going to, you know, crawl around on the ground anymore. She wanted to be part of the act. Action and it was, awesome. it was really interesting. Um, story. Yeah. Um, so you recently had an experience on on putting a gun together, and uh, why don't you talk about that and 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 how that was for you? Because I know for a big part of what you've been doing, it's mostly been focusing on ARs. Absolutely. One of the goals that I've had for a couple of years was to go out and shoot pigs at night. Uh, using all the high-tech fun toys, but to see how quietly we could do it. And we've run suppressed 300 blackout ARs, and they're pretty quiet uh, and so forth. But in visiting with Paul at Maker Bullets, uh, we were talking about the possibility of 308. I said, I want to do a bolt gun, and I happen to have a Remington 700 FPS uh, tactical 308 bolt gun here. And uh, visiting with him, he said, you know, the state of Texas is actually experimenting or wanting to experiment with subsonic 308. Now, a lot of people will just poo-poo that and say, oh, you can't do anything, you can't hunt with that, so forth. So, well, let's find out. And so Paul loaded us up some uh, 308 subsonics, and I grabbed a, uh, whatever I got, a Spec War 762 I put on the end of that, put a Night Force optic up there. I said, but you know what, I have to have, I've got to upgrade this Timney trigger. I mean, I've got three... Uh, Remington 700 Timneys laying here. I, I, I've got to upgrade the trigger. And so as I'm taking the gun apart, I didn't really notice much. And it's not that hard to do if people haven't done this. It's not like you need a gunsmith or anything. It's a real simple process. Pull a couple of screws out and so forth. So I put the uh, trigger in, and as I'm putting it back together, basically you've got to put uh, two screws back in to, to hold that action, as you know, into the stock. And, you know, I put it in. I'm trying to line it up just right. And I notice that my factory stock is flexing, literally, as I'm trying to, you know, get the angles squared up and everything. My factory stock is flexing. Now, I'm no world-class, F-class shooter. I, I've had the chance to shoot some long-range um, down in Phoenix and some other places with you and others, and it's fun, and I love it. And I get it, man. When that gun recoils, things happen, and I could not for the life of me believe how that stock flexed. I think I actually texted Zev uh, as I was doing it. I thought, this is absolutely nuts. 
how in the world this is supposed to be accurate? We were shooting at maybe 100 yards. So not a big, big deal. And it turns out it was a very successful experiment. And we shot pigs, and they died, and it was great. But, wow, do I need a new stock for this gun, because I understand, having been to the McMillan factory, toured it, seen what goes into it, uh, learning about the stiffness and having shot out there at Cowtown with those guns, now to come back and go, wow, look at how this thing is flexing. I'm not even pulling the trigger. I'm literally, I have it right here because something even my visit about this. I can literally, and I, I tell anybody who's listening, grab your gun and start pulling on the fore end of that stock, and you will flex it no problem. Well, thanks for uh plugging us and I think that I know somebody who can probably take care of you if you want to get a stock for that gun we'll, we'll make sure that the next time you do anything with this gun you're not going to have to complain about the stock <laughs> now I mentioned that your experience mostly has been with ARs so that that's a pretty broad game and and one of the things that, that I know uh, I I don't know much about ARs because I've been a bolt gun guy my entire life. So I'm going to kind of turn this section over to Zev because uh, though he's not an AR guy, he, he likes AKs, but he's had some experience. And, and I know he, you and he can communicate on this a little bit better than I can. Well, thank you, Kelly. Uh, you know, and I got, I got to correct that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, well, and I was going to say that, that I know for sure Zev is a Tavor guy. So. <laughs> that is correct, and I think that's why I like you so much. Is when I first met you, you were a Tavor guy as well. So, um, and, and I it just remain so. That's right. I have to just uh, amend what Kelly said. I I am an AK guy because I think it's a left-handed man's gun, um, and I enjoy it a lot. And and you know we could talk about how they aren't as uh, indestructible, nor are they as inaccurate as people say. But that's another topic. Uh, but ARs were the first. Uh, probably carbine that I did get into, and I've been following with interest the BATF's um, uh, wishy-washy zigzag about the whole arm brace uh, situation, and I know that you recently did a tremendous article on it, which I read twice because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything, and I'm really looking forward to not having a bruised sternum anymore from not shouldering those arm braces, um, and I'd like to hear more about it from you, what you found, and, and what your analysis is on that whole fiasco. Well, I think in the grand scheme of things, what we would say is that NFA laws are a better part of 100 years old, and given the technology and firearms designs of today, they really lack relevance. That whole system needs to be overhauled. The pistol brace concept was one. The very first time I ever saw it was at an NRA show a few years ago, and I just dismissed it. Literally, I was like, well, who would want that? I mean, it's kind of dumb. And, you know, I was just being an idiot. I didn't realize that, you know, the short, compact AR-15 would be pretty sweet. I'd just seen the pistols that had the buffer tube sticking out the end. And, you know, looks don't really matter. Function matters until it comes time to spend discretionary dollars, and then we care suddenly about the looks. And I just thought, I don't know. You know, I don't know. And then I got one. And it was like, whoa, this is great. And, of course, you know, with the ATF came out and they said, yeah, you know, if you, if you use a screwdriver as a hammer, it's still a screwdriver. So, you know, if you were to somehow shoulder this pistol that you just got, it, it's still a pistol, you know. And it was like, awesome. And it's the end of the SBR. Well, it's not really because you don't have 
the stability of a proper stock and these kinds of things. It's not quite as comfortable to fire that way, so forth. Well, not long after, the ATF got flooded, as you well know, with, well, what about, what about, what about, what about? And eventually they said, man, we're getting all these letters. People are clearly trying to figure out how to exploit this, so we're going to change our ruling. And they used an interesting word, redesign. They said, if you take that stock, that not stock, that pistol brace, and you shoulder it, you have redesigned it into a stock. Wow, that's the strangest thing in the world to me. I mean, that just defies all sense of logic. How do you redesign something? Uh, you know, you move it two inches from your sternum to, you know, some piece of pectoral tissue, and suddenly you've redesigned a mechanical device that you got in the mail? <laughs> uh, for real. Uh, it's mind-boggling. So, you know, everybody goes dark, and nobody's going to, you know, talk about, oh, well, we have a pistol brace, and uh, we may have inadvertently slipped it off the sternum, or maybe have had an unusually wide sternum, or suspected that, or you know, so many things. So here just uh, last week, they issued yet another letter. And uh, there's hats off to the folks at SB Tactical and their law firm, who apparently pounded on the ATF to get a little bit more logic. And it, they said, oh, we were wrong. And when it comes to all this, we rescind the last thing that we said, and you're not redesigning it. And there are some little minor stipulations in all of this. But essentially, if you put a pistol brace, a stabilizing brace, not necessarily an arm brace, but a stabilizing brace uh, to your shoulder, you're no longer officially a bad guy. And that's brilliant. And, you know, uh, I got to tell you about a year and a half ago, I did a uh, aerial or drone video for one of our local manufacturers here. And we had a celebrity come out and that celebrity uh, shouldered a arm braced uh, uh, AR and we had to literally collect all the pictures that were taken by bystanders and spectators and, and get them and make sure they were deleted. And I also had to uh, delete <laughs> the footage that I took. So it was a serious thing back in the day. Yeah, which back in the day is two weeks ago. Right. So, I mean, that just tells us again the, the, the logic sometimes employed as rules are made in Washington, D.C. You mentioned that some of these rules that apply are near 100 years old and outdated. I know that now with, I think, 43 states allowing you to hunt with suppressors, which is incredibly crazy to me how they thought somebody was more dangerous with a gun that that didn't make a lot of noise as opposed to one that made a lot of noise. Uh, it, it was like in Arizona. I could never understand why they thought I was more dangerous if I had a gun under my jacket than if I had it on my hip. Because in Arizona, <laughs> we've always had open carry uh, here, so we could carry a gun anywhere we wanted to as long as people could see it. Now, to me, if people don't see it, I'm far less dangerous than if people do. But, you know, it, it took a long time for this state to change that law. And now we have uh, concealed carry without a permit. And, and, you know, I think that for law-abiding citizens, being able to carry a gun for self-protection and, and not to have to display it for everyone to know you've got it is, is an advantage and only makes sense. Well, I would concur. And there are some silly laws out there. I'm in Colorado now. And you know, we have a magazine capacity limit that is being challenged in court literally today. And statistically, you know, they've got a professor from William & Mary out there 
who's showing the absurdity of thinking that that enhances safety for anyone. Jonathan, I want to thank you for coming back on the show. It's been great having you. Still, I think that we could fill up another 30-minute segment with everything we could talk about sure. even after your second visit. So uh, promise me when I call, you'll, uh, you'll come back on the show and, and spend some more time with us. I always enjoy it. Thank you, Kelly. Once again, we've come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Remember, we will be here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I ask you to get out there and enjoy this great country. The spring weather is awesome. Do some shooting. Spend some time on the range. Practice your wind reading um, and uh, enjoy this great country. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.